Welcome to Scripps Talks. My name is Bob Stewart, and for one more week, I am the director of the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism. And with me today, we have Rick Green, editor of the Louisville Courier-Journal. He was a Scripps student back in the 80s, and his paper just won a Pulitzer. So we wanted to talk about what it's like to win a Pulitzer during the pandemic. Rick, welcome to the podcast, and what's it like to win a Pulitzer during the pandemic? Well, first off, it's great to be with you, and it's great to be able to speak to fellow Bobcats, wherever they may be, and this is a real moment of time, personally and professionally. So we won a Pulitzer the first Monday in May. Nobody was in the newsroom. Nobody watched the broadcast. I didn't get a chance to stand on the desk and salute the staff with a bottle or two of champagne. It was just another Monday, as surreal as that might sound. It's a great honor. We've been in this business for a long time, Bob, and we never are in it to go out and win awards or seek recognition. You just want to tell meaningful stories that make a difference, that hold those who are in power accountable, protect the interests of taxpayers, and be an advocate for those who have no voice. But whenever you find out that you've been able to earn recognition for the most prestigious group journalistically in the country, it's very humbling. It's a great honor. As I said, it's just so surreal. And this time for everybody, personally and professionally, whenever we found out, I literally found out through a friend, we were starting to watch a group of editors in our company, the USA Today Network, owned by Gannett. Uh, about two dozen of us were starting to watch the uh, live broadcast. We had a meeting at 2.45 that was organized by the president of our network. She said, hey, listen, let's, you know, the Pulitzer's are on at 3 o'clock. Let's watch them. So I'm in my basement here in Louisville, Kentucky. I've got my laptop open with the screen of the Zoom meeting going on with about two dozen people, and I have my phone attuned to the Pulitzer broadcast. And just as she starts to announce the first winners, I lost my connection on my phone. I'm picking up my phone, and I'm trying to figure out what the hell happened with the connection, and I'm watching the Zoom call in front of me. And all of a sudden, I see all these faces of my friends and fellow editors cheering and smiling and clapping. And I'm like, wow, somebody won. That's fantastic. wonder who it was. I called my boss who was on the call and said, what's going on? And she's like, you idiot. The Career Journal just won a Pulitzer. So we made the connection and we were able to watch it again. And I immediately sent an email to my staff and said something like, oh, my God, we just won a Pulitzer. And within seconds, I got a text back from one of my editors saying, Rick, has your email been hacked again? So <laughs> everything about this moment was um, highly unusual. But I guess the one thing that wasn't is a hardworking staff and ambitious staff told a really important story here in Kentucky last December. And it resonated with the Pulitzer Prize board. And uh, we're very grateful for the recognition. Walk us through the story, because not everybody listening to this would be familiar with the story or, or certainly not the details. 2015, Kentucky elected a firebrand Republican by the name of Matt Bevin, very conservative, ran against kind of the common sense stream of politicians in many ways. And I'm not making a political statement at all, Bob, but in many ways, he has the same type of DNA as Trump in that. He didn't care whether or not he irritated, upset, or angered fellow Republicans. He had no desire to build collaborative bridges with the minority party in our Commonwealth. And he loved to take shots at the media, among many of his personal qualities. He lost the election in November by about 5,500 votes to the Democratic Attorney General. It was an upset. It was a very closely watched election. Trump came here just a couple days before the election obviously touting Matt Bevin's accomplishments and his candidacy for re-election. 
the attorney general won and we didn't hear anything from Bevin for several days. In the final hours before he left office in Frankfurt, literally the, at the end of his term, we caught wind that he was making a tremendous number of pardons and commutations. I can tell you that we were in a news meeting. It was uh, two o'clock. My politics and government editor came in and said, we don't know all the details yet, but we're hearing some really strange things about the governor's pardons and whether or not some kind of political favors are playing a role in it. So immediately we launched two or three reporters at the story to try to figure out what we could do. That night was the first salvo in what was about a two and a half, three week blitz of stories. Long story short, Bob, we found out that one of the individuals who had been um, convicted by a jury, sentenced to state prison, among his many associated crimes was reckless homicide involving a home break-in. He had been pardoned by the governor. We found out that about a year and a half, two years or so before the decision was made, this individual's family had a fundraiser for the governor there in Kentucky and raised roughly $21,000 for the governor's campaign. We were told that there was pressure being applied by the family to the governor. And as we started to dig into that, that was the first story. And then we formed a task force and we had roughly, I guess whenever all was said and done, we had roughly 12 people in the month of December, literally days before the holiday season kicked into high gear, digging into more than 600 of these commutations. We went case by case paper by paper, file by file, looking at them all, found out that there were uh, convicted sex offenders that had been released, questionable decisions made involving violent crime offenders. And the governor had done this in a vacuum, Bob. He had not had any conversations with the law enforcement community uh, involved in those trials and convictions before making these decisions. Certainly didn't talk to victims' families or their advocates certainly didn't talk to legislature, did not talk to very many members of his administration, if any. Literally in the hours before he left office in Frankfurt, late into the night, he was going through stacks and stacks and stacks of these applications and approving many of them. The most poignant moment, if there was one of those moments that you're going to step back and somebody will write a book about this whole situation, I'm sure. One of the reporters on the story was a, one of my writers named Joe Sanka. And Joe was a new state house reporter. He was the one who had gotten the initial tip as well as Andy Wilson, one of our long-term legal affairs reporters. Joe was out on a Saturday night. This is the, the end of the first week of all of our reporting on this whole growing controversy. He's at a restaurant here in Louisville with his wife. Now, he and his wife had a very young daughter, and I think it was their first date night, if you will, on a Saturday night in months and months and months. And Joe gets a phone call. It was a blocked call at the table. He picks it up. Hi, this is Joe Sanka, Courier Journal. And on the other line was Matt Bevan. Joe excused himself, went out into the parking lot, into a, actually like right outside the restaurant on, in a very busy street area ten days before Christmas here in Louisville, filled with all kinds of shoppers and Santa Clauses, everything, a chaotic scene. And the governor of Kentucky, the former governor of Kentucky, defends himself with great vigor, is very defiant, blast those individuals, politicians, particularly on the Republican side, who had been critical of uh, all the things that we were finding out. And then he threw down a challenge to Joe. And it was something along the lines of, listen, I know that there's a lot of attention to these cases and people were wrong. I challenge you to find three or four of the most interesting ones and dig and dig and dig and dig some more. And the truth is going to come out. 
And I don't know how good of a reporter you are, or how good of a researcher you are, but somebody could win a Pulitzer on this story because there's more than what meets the eye. So Joe calls me and tells me about this. I don't know. I think there were two conversations back to back that lasted maybe 40 minutes or so. And he gives me this quote. He says, he says that basically he's challenging me to continue to dig in this and we can win a Pulitzer. And I told Joe, I said, listen, he has so many strong comments about his defense and his defiance and his explanations as to why he was making these pardons and commutations. I said, you don't need to quote about the Pulitzer. I said, that just feels a little cheesy to me to say, hey, if you keep digging, you can win a Pulitzer. We certainly didn't forget it. And it certainly wasn't the inspiration that triggered our investigation. But for a, a spell of three weeks, we did exactly what the governor challenged us to do. We did dig deep. We went through all kinds of public records. We talked to uh, members of his staff, the inner circle, that were kind of aware of what was unfolding. We were able to do a TikTok as to the final hours of his administration and the moves that he made. We talked to the victims' families and their outrage and anger as to what it was that the governor's decisions meant for their families and those that they had lost in crimes committed by those that Bevan had pardoned or whose sentence they commuted. Our second day headline was one that I think is starting to be seen a lot in social media is, Matt Bevan, you can rot in hell. And that came from the mother of one of the victims whose convicted killer was released. So this was never a story that examined whether or not pardons and commutations are good. It was never designed to be an enterprise story on law enforcement, incarceration, anything along those lines. In the final hours of his administration, a governor in Kentucky, in his own, made highly controversial decisions that defied logic for an awful lot of people. And we told the story, and we looked at it from every conceivable angle, from the race of those individuals who were released to the depth of the violent crime, to the lobbying that was going on by some individuals trying to get convicts pardoned or sentences commuted. So it was a multifaceted story. We uh, capitalized with just everybody we could on our staff, produced an eight-page special section a couple days before Christmas Eve that examined every single case. The Pulitzer board put it in the breaking news category, and we certainly considered it a breaking news investigation. You know, I learned a long time ago at Ohio University, and I can still remember Marilyn Greenwald's public affairs classes. My advisor was Donald Lambert, bless his soul, and all the things that we learned about good old-fashioned shoe leather journalism. And we're in this era now where we talk about multimedia and social media. We talk about our audiences and SEO and Twitter followers. And what I have told every young journalist who's come to me and said, I know how to shoot video, I know how to edit video, I have 5,000 followers on Twitter, and I have this understanding of Facebook, are the questions that Marilyn Greenwald would post to me when I was a student on her public affairs reporting. Do you know where to find public records that are pertinent to a story? How do you develop sources who will tell you things that they're not supposed to tell you? How do you use good old-fashioned shoe leather journalism to track down tips and leads and tell stories that need to be told that public officials don't want told? So it's that basic blocking and tackling that is, to me, the, the foundational DNA of our business that won this Pulitzer for us, and we couldn't be more happy about it.
Well, that's an amazing story and a great example, and I think a great opportunity for a Pulitzer Prize committee to spotlight extremely important work. And I'm sure your readers must have been quite happy about this investigation. I mean, a lot of times, you know, there's this blowback against media organizations for digging, but I have to believe your readers were delighted with what you did. Yeah, you know, we heard from an awful lot of them, and even some of our most ardent critics, the ones over the years that have painted us as the liberal rag in Louisville, Kentucky, with an agenda, and you're never fair to Republicans. You know, a lot of the predictable blowback that you hear, particularly in this, I don't know, this era in which we live in right now, big enemy of the people. And we heard from those folks who said, thank you for doing this. This was not easy. This was revelatory. This was a story that we know was not right there for the picking. You had to break out the shovels and dig and dig and dig for this. You did great work for our Commonwealth. Mitch McConnell is a Louisville Republican, obviously the Senate Majority Leader. And it's no secret, and I'm not speaking out of school when I say he is one of the most ardent supporters of conservatives and the Republican cause in the country, undoubtedly, and with good reason. He was even critical of Bevin. He came out and offered a backhanded compliment in a way to the Courier-Journal, but was very, very critical of what it was that Bevin had done and what we had found. After the Pulitzer, the level of praise has really intensified. We've gotten checks from readers who have said, I'll contribute to help you bolster your investigative reporting ranks. I'll help you pay for a reporter that will continue to tell stories like what you told related to Matt Bevin and this controversy. That's phenomenal. It's one thing to send an email. It's one thing to, to say something very nice in a phone call. It's a whole other thing when individuals are writing checks saying, I believe in the power of the First Amendment. I believe in what the Career Journal is doing. I want to help you tell more stories like you told in December. In many ways, Bob, that means more to me than the Pulitzer. That recognition of the Pulitzer, and I'm not certainly besmirching the Pulitzer. That's an incredible honor. But in this era... When we have such a partisan environment, when there is this whole cacophony of voices on both sides pointing fingers and there's so much division, in a newspaper in Louisville, Kentucky, we epitomize flyover country. And for those individuals to say, we're so impressed by the quality of this investigation, we want more of it, here's a $500 check, that warms your heart in a way that nothing else will. So I have to ask if the governor's quote about wanting a Pulitzer ever made it into print. It did. So I had written a column in the end of December that basically was kind of the capstone of our investigation. This was the eight-page special section we did in print, and obviously we had aggregated all of our good work and investigations on the, on the website. And I revealed what Bevin had told Joe Sanka in that column. And... We didn't use it in a news story. It was in the column. And I explained to our readers, I don't know where this story is going to go. At that time, there were calls for investigations from the feds. There was a call from legislators that they needed to enhance the legislative powers and curb what kind of pardons and commutational efforts and powers that governors have as they leave office. There was a lot of a flurry of activity at the end of the investigation. And I brought that quote out. And I told folks, I said, you know, this has never been about awards. This is about trying to protect taxpayers. And honestly, Bob, those victims, there were some heinous crimes that people were convicted of. And some of those individuals are no longer with us. 
sex assault victims, young girls, that the governor said the person who was convicted of that crime deserves a chance for grace, deserves a second chance. Very interesting blend of personal spirituality that was underscored in many of his decisions to release some of these prisoners. So we used the quote as a way to explain to people what all he had said. And basically it was one parting shot that Bevan had to the reporter. It was very snide. You know, somebody could win a Pulitzer show. I don't, I don't know how good of a reporter you are. I don't really know how good of a researcher you are, but basically in the hands of a really skilled reporter, they could win a Pulitzer on this story. And what he didn't realize when he said that was that I think he was projecting that somebody could win a Pulitzer to prove that the actions and the decisions he made were the right ones and that the Pulitzer would have poked holes in the angry response and the criticism directed at the governor by fellow Republicans and politicians. I don't think he ever understood that this led to a Pulitzer because of his actions, because of what he had done and the story that we were able to tell. A fascinating collision of different opinions and thoughts that unfolded that day just before Christmas. And we told it in a column. And then the day we won the Pulitzer, after it was people actually like said, oh my God, we really did win the Pulitzer. We saw what the Pulitzer board had said about our work. Joe texted me and said, okay, now can I write that quote? Now can I put it in a news story? And so we certainly, uh, we certainly did. And There'll probably be a t-shirt or two with that quote on it. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Like I said, this whole story was such a blur. It was just constant digging. It wasn't like a one moment, uh, a plane crash, a tragic fire, an act of God. This was literally painstaking investigative work on a very tight deadline. And we just continued to power through day after day after day digging up new information and breaking stories and telling stories that needed to be told. This is our 11th Pulitzer. The last one was in 2005, was an editorial cartoonist who had won. The last time we had won for news coverage was in 1989, and that was the May 1988 tragic bus crash in Carrollton, Kentucky, um, involving a, a drunk driver. If I remember correctly, I believe 23 individuals had died, many of them children, who um, were from Louisville church group that had gone to Cincinnati for the day to Kings Island and were returning to Louisville, Kentucky late at night and a drunk driver uh, on the wrong side of the highway crashed into the school bus that erupted in flames and a very tragic story that the Courier Journal had won a Pulitzer Prize for. What impact does winning a Pulitzer have for your staff? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, but these are tough times right now, and obviously the coronavirus is <laughs> causing even more disruption in all the norms. I have to believe that it has felt like a shot in the arm in spite of furloughs and you know other economic pressures. What kind of impact do you sense from your staff? It is a unexpected, high-powered shot of adrenaline at a time when we really, really needed it. We left our newsroom, just like a lot of news organizations, in early March, and I asked our staff to continue to put out an award-winning website, do meaningful journalism, and let's do it from your kitchen table, your basement, against great odds. And initially, it was, it was sort of, I think, hard to grasp 
what it was we're doing, there was a bit of a novelty to it of like, oh my God, I'm there I am, you know, day four, I'm, I'm working from my kitchen table and I'm writing stories and doing my website creation and I'm updating stories and doing social media. By about week 10, the social isolation had kicked in. The fact that folks who thrived in a collaborative, creative, energetic newsroom were working from home is draining. And I think emotionally, it's very trying for many members of our staff. I mean, I've been in a funk because of it. I've thrived in, in the middle of a newsroom and directing coverage and encouraging reporters and rolling up your sleeves and editing stories and talking for, you know, 12, 13, 14 hours a day, just talking about the news. And, and then suddenly, you know, you're in your basement and you're in a Teams call or in a Zoom call. So the Pulitzer was highly unexpected and it brought back a sense of swagger, a sense of pride. It helped us get through some of these these long, dark days of being socially distanced and trying to overcome the separation. But also, and, and you mentioned it a second ago, Bob, it comes in the face of unprecedented change and challenge in our industry. Some of the folks who were intimately involved in that Pulitzer win were on furlough the next week. It's a test of, I think, of leadership of being able to continue to inspire and challenge and expect great work, but also having the emotional intelligence to check on your staff and to to make sure they're doing well, to encourage them, and to not even talk journalism when you give them a call or call them up on a video chat. You just talk about how they are. Are you getting exercise? Are you breaking away from the work? I mean, it's pandemic, and it's not just in Louisville. Bob, I mean, it's there in, in Athens. It's in Columbus. It's around the entire world. These media sites and the reporters and journalists that are involved in the coverage, it has been a marathon-breaking story where you're literally in the very beginnings of the pandemic. So many stories and so many changes and so much breaking news. And, you know, you could barely walk away from your computer or your phone for an hour and something significant was happening in Washington or in your own state capital or your hometown or in London or wherever. And it was draining. The Pulitzer is fantastic. Like I said, it's a, it's a great jolt of positive affirmation for the work that we're doing, but it comes at a time of unprecedented change and challenge. And I don't know what's going to unfold in the days and weeks and months ahead. It depends on what happens economically. It depends on, you know, the pursuit of a vaccine. I know that we're asking more than ever before of journalists in the most surreal times. And I am so impressed and blown away by their dedication to tell great stories in the face of a pandemic, but layered on top of the the economic challenges that are there. Every week, we're dealing with 25, 30% less of our staff than what we had the week before, and we're navigating it just like a lot of newsrooms across the entire industry are doing. And you're not doing it for prizes. You're not doing it for recognition. You're doing it because there's a conviction in this industry. There's a conviction for the things we learned when we were in Scripps Hall 30 years ago. Folks before me in Lasher Hall, and now the beautiful new building you have on campus, those moments that you bottle that energy and that passion and say, you know what, you can do work that makes a difference. And every day you wake up, it's not the same as it was the day before. And there's something exhilarating about that, even at a time whenever the way in which we do our work is being challenged by outside economic forces beyond our control. Let me ask you a hypothetical question, which uh, just to speculate on a little bit. With the Matt Bevin story, 
if that had transpired during the middle of the pandemic, where so many of your resources are being focused as a news organization on covering the pandemic, do you think a story like that would get published, would get known about? Or do you think the pandemic is creating so much attention that it's hard to cover anything else? Well, that's a really great question. I, I, I am a, a disciple and a f- incredibly passionate believer in the power of local news. CNN isn't going to report on the daily ins and outs of news here in Kentucky. Rarely will they do so. Washington Post will parachute in and out on some stories. But in terms of the daily cadence of news that's important to our Commonwealth, I'm the largest news organization in the state, and my staff is going to tell it better than anybody. I would like to believe that had we known the same circumstances today as what we knew in December, it would be tougher. I'm not going to lie to you. It would be damn difficult because of the challenges on the staff, the way we've just divided and conquered on all things pandemic. But I also think that it would have been apparent to us that there's something rotten in Frankfurt, and we really need to figure out how we're going to cover it and make those sacrifices. Would it have resonated as much statewide as what it did in December? I don't think so. I mean, honestly, you're, you're talking about a governor who every day at 5 o'clock here in Kentucky is giving us see those body counts. He's telling us how many individuals have died because of the pandemic. He's talking about the number of cases. And at the very beginning, you know, 10 weeks ago, he was talking about this, you know, dramatic shortages of ventilators and PPE equipment and, and all the things that weren't happening that needed to happen. And I'm not sure that a story about a governor whose decisions about pardons and commutations that had erupted if it would have resonated as much. I'd like to think that we would have thrown every bit of firepower at it as we possibly could have, but it would have been a lot tougher. It's a very good question. As we're sort of winding down, I'd like to have our listeners hear some about your journey. You've been with Gannett pretty much from day one, as I recall, since being a student. And you've been editor for several of the big Gannett brands and now, of course, the Louisville Courier-Journal. What have you learned at each of these places along the way that makes you the Rick Green that you are today? I've been blessed. I started when I was a high school student in my hometown in Coshocton, Ohio, mighty Coshocton Tribune. And I will tell you, and maybe some of your listeners will remember this moment in their own personal lives. I was in between my junior and senior year in high school, and I came to Athens for the high school publications workshop. It was my first time on a college campus. It was the first time, obviously, in Athens. By the end of the second day, I had fallen in love with that campus and the program and knew that was where I wanted to go. I met the journalism director at the time, Cortland Anderson, and was able to have a 90-minute conversation with him about this profession and about the prospects and the possibilities of going to Ohio U. And, you know, it's not an understatement, those things that I learned those four years there until I wrapped up my studies in 87 were absolutely incredible in terms of helping me become the journalist that I became. I've been blessed. I um, started in Chillicothe, was there for about nine months, moved to Cincinnati for a number of years, started getting into editing in Cincinnati at the Inquirer, went out west to Palm Springs, was ME, and then uh, became an executive editor out there, went to the Des Moines Register, publisher, or started as editor, and then became publisher, went the publisher route, 
and then got promoted and moved to the Cincinnati. And I missed the newsroom. I was a publisher in Cincinnati for about two years, and then went to North Jersey in Bergen County. Gannett had purchased the record at NorthJersey.com and was integrating it into the company. And so that was a, a very tough and challenging assignment, but man, a great staff and wonderful journalism that was told. And then two years ago, was asked to come to Louisville. Leadership is personal, right? There are some things that are fundamentally the same in every newsroom that you go to. First and foremost, I don't believe personally as a leader, people care how much you know. People have no interest in your experience. They don't want you to come in and pontificate. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And with me, I have always emphasized, I want to do great journalism. I want to work with really talented people. I will help coach you. I will help inspire you. I will help bring in even better journalists than what we have. But I want to feel great about the journalism that we tell. I want it to be every ethical standard. I want it to be fair. I want it to be fierce. I want to do it in a very relevant but unbiased way. I've been doing it since I was 15, Bob, and I just can't imagine doing anything else right now, even with all the challenges that are out there. And it's tougher than ever, but I also believe we live in this golden age of storytelling. Never before have we been able to do meaningful work that touches so many people in so many ways, on so many platforms, and it's from a journalistic, a pure storytelling, watchdog standpoint, there's never been a greater time to be a journalist. But I'll tell you something, it is damn difficult as you navigate these unprecedented times, these changes and challenges. I want to believe, because I've always been an optimistic guy, that goodness will win at the end of the day. It's not going to come without a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of tough decisions. And I would like to think that what's unfolded here in Louisville, since we won the Pulitzer three weeks ago, where folks I've never met are sending me checks and saying, please use this money to help expand your staff. Please go out and find another investigative reporter. Here's $200, $50, $500. Let me do what I can do to help you. Let me get a digital subscription to, to help fuel your investigative team. I want to believe, despite all these challenges, that that's what's going to win today. People need us. We've been accused of being the enemy of the people, and that's a painful thing to hear whenever you know that we're the eyes and the ears of the people. We're the, the heart of a community. So if I've learned anything along the way, um, and it's been a great journey and it's not over yet, I'm proud to be in this business. I'm proud to be a Bobcat, is never get disappointed, never get overwhelmed by the challenges, grab them by the horns, confront them, address it straight up, and every day, do your very best and do the right thing by your staff, by the story, and by this profession we love and the community that we're serving. You know, I was going to ask you, what would you tell a young person today? But I think you just, you just gave the answer to that question. We're very proud of you and glad that your journey started out, you know, at our high school workshop back in the, the early 80s. And here you are still leading a newsroom of journalists to do great work. Thank you very much for all that you have done for your communities along the way. Go Bobcats. Go Bobcats, absolutely. And thanks for the chance to talk a little bit about it. I just want to reiterate, I've got a, an amazing newsroom here at Louisville, the Courier Journal, and I'm incredibly proud of them. But we've been able to be in a lot of different places and build a lot of great teams, and every one of them is committed to serving the readers and serving their communities. I've still got an awful lot of fire in the belly, 
and I think often about Cortland Anderson. I think often about that very first meeting, and he left me was while I was leaving. It was an old Lasher Hall. He had an office upstairs on the second floor, and I can remember shaking his hand. I was the only one. It was a session that was supposed to be meet the director, and I guess I was the only one that showed up, and that's why we were able to talk for so long. Shook my hand and said, come to Ohio University. You're going to be able to do great things here. And I've never forgotten that, and he was spot on. I'm so grateful that I made that decision to come to Athens and to go to this great school. You're never in it for the awards or the recognition, but I hope by virtue of us winning this and getting some attention, that it speaks to my affection for that school and for your program. And I'm hoping that there are some students that may be listening that think that they want to be a journalist and inspired by the chance to write and to report that make a difference. Please do it. This industry needs you. And we're always looking for that next generation of not just Pulitzer Prize winners, but reporters who have got great conviction to defend the First Amendment and to do the work that makes a difference in their hometowns. Rick Green, thank you for being on Scripps Talks. Thanks, Bob. Take care. Stay healthy, everyone.